You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. Excellent. Okay, great. <laughs> Wonderful. Most important event to be here. Yes, go ahead. Somebody had their hand up. Ju- or Kathy, go ahead. Yeah, the day you met Jesus, right? And I think most of us would say would say that. That's for sure. Okay. Anybody else? Yes, Haley. The day I met my husband. The day you met your husband. Aww. And where did you meet said husband? Sixth grade. Sixth grade. Wow. Wow. Aww. That's fancy. And then, uh, if you if you don't know Haley, her and her husband um, actually he was a. He is kind of a magical guy. We'll just say that. Magical guy. And I, I don't mean that in the way Haley meant. I mean, he actually like does magic. Um, and they were on stage together. It's pretty fascinating, actually. So, yes, other things. Go ahead, Sally. Well, mine's kind of along Haley's line, but the day I decided to let Ray, start letting Ray be my friend. The day I start now. Now. I want to phrase that again. Phrase that. You guys got to hear that. Phrase that again, Sally. The day you started letting Ray be your friend. Because Ray was creepy. And... No, I'm not... I'm, I'm, yeah, he was creepy and he kept asking. Right? He was annoying. He was annoying. And finally, the annoyance wore her down. And the rest, as they say, is... History. history, yeah, and there's part of history back over there. What's it? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, we found some interesting facts about Canada, but I'm not going to get into that. That'll be for a different sermon. Go ahead, Stubb. The fact that he was a Canadian. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty important. He still is. And he still is, yeah. Um, we found out, uh, Laura can explain this better, but there's a thing called the Apology Act in Canada, that an apology in a court cannot be taken as an admission of guilt, but is only an admission of empathy. Like they had to make an act about that because Canadians apologize. And so they were saying, well, he said he was sorry, so obviously he did it. Apparently not. So they made an act about that. So, yes, go ahead, Barb. Becoming a mom. Yes. Mine is very similar to that, but becoming a dad. That's the other side of that one. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first time, first time I saw my, my uh, baby girl who is about to come back next week. Yeah, you guys won't see her next Sunday. She'll be traveling next Sunday, but she'll be back the week after that. But the first time I saw my baby girl was the first time I realized that I could love someone way, way, way more than myself. And not that I couldn't do that with Laura. Like, I I don't want to downplay that, but there's something different about a child. So, go ahead, Jack. Becoming an uncle. Yeah, changes your life, right? Changes your perspective. Yes, about not having kids. Yeah. (laughs) And all God's people said, Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Lori. The day that I stood in the kitchen and I said to my husband, just tell me right now that we're not going to Albania because I have to get it out of my heart. And he says, do you want to go that bad? And I said, I do. And we sat down and wrote our, our letter for uh, to raise funds. And in two months, we had more money than we could possibly imagine. You're on your way to go. Something. Yep. It changed my life. Yeah, big day. Never big, want to not go on mission. Big day of watching God do stuff. Yes, ma'am. The day that God gave me another life because I had, I had my 
Yeah, God's healing through a surgery. That's, it's absolutely pow- it's powerful because you realize like there's a whole another world here that I have to I have to walk in faith. Yeah. yeah. Some of those events where you see your life and the shortness of it are really, really important. Go ahead, Stefan. Uh, I would say the day that God did not let me die. The day that God did not let you die. Sim- similar, okay. Yep. Yep. It, and same thing, set you on a different course with a single, that single preserving, uh, preser- preserving action. There was somebody else. Go ahead, Stubb. You got another? One of the most important days of my life was after six heart attacks, I was still living. After six heart attacks, you were still living. I, so the first five weren't real important, but that sixth one, boy, I tell you what. I mean, like, I've had more stents since I've <laughs> And you're still kicking and have all your original teeth. Now that's pretty good warranty. Um, yeah, I, and there's a lot of, I mean, I could ask you another question, um, and this one's one just to think about. What would you consider to be the most important event ever? Personally, I... You know, and this isn't even just a, just Christianese. This truly is like the day that Jesus Christ entered this this world. We celebrated at Christmas. But I would say the day that He came, because of course the purpose was He had to come and He came in order to live a perfect, spotless life, in order to preach and teach about who God is, in order to show who God is, and in order to die on a cross to pay for the wrath and the penalty that is due for our sin in order to be resurrected to show us what newness of life looks like in order to send us the Holy Spirit in order to heal us and give us uh, a whole new purpose and a power in living that's an incredible an incredible event in fact we even we, we break our calendar apart into this uh, AD and BC right the uh, uh, after the after the, the deity of Christ showed and the um, I don't remember what the BC is before something or another. But anyways, I don't even care. Um, but there's, there's this, this, this idea of, um, this idea of the fact that Jesus came marks actually everything in our calendar. We date everything to that. Now there's a lot of things we can remember on certain dates. I did some research about this date. Things that happened on this date in human history. Are you ready? 1667, Jean-Baptiste Denis, I think that's his name, administered the first fully documented human blood transfusion, 1667. He successfully transfused the blood of a sheep into a 15-year-old boy. Successfully. Successfully. He eats grass, no. He got a little fuzzy, and it wasn't just because he's 15. Um... 1752, this day, 1752, Benjamin Franklin experimented by flying a kite during a thunderstorm. The result was a little spark that showed the relationship between lightning and electricity and and helped us all realize that Benjamin Franklin is not very wise. 1775, George Washington was appointed head of the Continental Army by the Second Continental Congress. 1775, year before. 1836, Arkansas became the 25th U.S. state. Yay. <laughs> do, you, do you know how, how you know that the toothbrush was invented in Arkansas? 
I have no idea. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> Move on. Okay. If you didn't hear what Jesse said, you better be consider yourself very blessed. Um, okay. 1844, Charles Goodyear presents, er, pre- presents patents vulcanization, which is the strengthening of rubber for other materials. That's a pretty, and it also is, you know, where Star Trek started. Uh, 1846, the United States and Britain settled a boundary dispute concerning the boundary between the U.S. and Canada by signing a treaty. Thank you, Britain. (coughs) Never mind. Okay, sorry. Uh, 1898, the U.S. House of Representatives approved the annexation of Hawaii. That's actually awesome. Uh, in 1916, although if you know the history of Hawaii, it wasn't an awesome thing. Uh, 1916, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson signed a bill incorporating the Boy Scouts of America, now known as the Scouts of America. 1986, Pravda, the Community Party Communist Party newspaper, this is a good one, reported that the chief engineer of Chernobyl was dismissed for mishandling an incident at the plant. <laughs> Okay, 1991, oh, getting a little closer. A climactic eruption of the Mount Pinatubo volcano in the Philippines, the second largest volcanic eruption on Earth of the 20th century. It was in 1991. Crazy. 1992, it was ruled by the U.S. Supreme Court that the government could kidnap criminal suspects from foreign countries for prosecution. Ray? <laughs> Watching. All right, 1992, U.S. Vice President, this is great news, U.S. Vice President Dan Quayle instructed a student to spell potato with an E on the end during a spelling bee. He had relied on a faulty flashcard that had been written by the student's teacher. Yeah, right? 1996, Ella Fitzgerald dies, and with her, a piece of the American soul. And last, 2015, real estate mogul Donald Trump launches his campaign for the U.S. President. All that happened on this day. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, that's just fascinating. Except for the fact that when I Google searched it, I typed in June 15th instead of July 15th. <laughs> so all of that stuff did not happen on this day, but in fact happened a month ago. <laughs> now, <laughs> all of this ridiculousness is to highlight the fact that remembering things is quite difficult. And even when we do, we will often get the dates incorrect. We will get things very, very much incorrect. The human mind is a funny and fickle thing when it comes to the past. See, you can remember things, but I don't know if you know this about your memories. The more you recall the most important memories you have, it's like a, it's like a Xerox machine. The, the, uh, Xerox machine for those of you younger is a thing that you put stuff on, you push a button and it makes a copy. Okay, but the copy comes out fuzzier than the original. And so every time that you remember a memory, it actually comes out slightly fuzzier than the original. And so your most important memories actually become your least accurate ones. And we actually know this kind of inherently, right? We know that we have this rose-colored glasses thing. We know that sometimes things uh, that are a big deal often over the course of time become a much smaller deal. And this is partly because of that. Our memories become, become fuzzier over time. And couple that with the fact that your brain really likes to fill in information when it doesn't have it because it doesn't like being unsure of itself means that the more you remember something, the fuzzier it gets, the more you're actually going to interject new information into your memories. 
So you will not only remember things poorly, but you will begin to falsely remember things. And this actually goes to, I mean, you can, you can actually do this in your mind. You can manipulate your mind to do this, which is how people pass lie detector tests. And unfortunately, according to somebody, but I forgot who it is, uh, those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. And actually, I know who said it. There's a huge debate about who said it, but uh, there's two different philosophers that that quote's attributed to. But those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Today, as we get into the book of Nehemiah, which we've been walking through since, oh, I don't remember how long, nine weeks ago, as we've been walking through Nehemiah, today we get to a point where, and this happens quite a bit in Scripture, where the uh, the Jews of the Old Testament, um, the Israelites, recall, remember their history. They recall to mind the things that they did. And there's a reason why they do this. One of the reasons this happens several times in Scripture is because they're an oral culture. Their oral culture is a storytelling culture. Um, There are some people who can read from scrolls, and actually their society had one of the highest literacy rates of the ancient kingdom. They taught people how to read early, and they had a very highly sophisticated school system compared to other other places around them, with exception to the Egyptians and the Greeks. But there were, um, they, they taught many people to read, but they didn't have, uh, they didn't have a, a literacy rate like ours. Their literacy rate was about 20%, a little bit less than that. So about 20% of the people could read. And so what they would do is they would rehearse, they would recite the scriptures from memory, they would recite their history, and they would talk about their history. It's a storytelling culture. And we're starting to become one of those cultures, just so you know. Although we are literate, we're moving into what we call secondary orality, but that's for another time. But today we're going to jump into Nehemiah, and they're going to rehearse the history of the Israelites. Speaking of rehearsing the history of the Israelites, guess what we get to do right now? The thing that Nick refused to do last week. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I got a report from Will just before. Um, so I have these little uh, these little things in your bulletin, these little icons. You can see them on the right side of your handout. And they are the icons that represent some of the major events in Israel's history. And because it's summertime and I've been, you know, channeling my inner VBS leader, what I'm doing is I'm trying to teach you guys the human, or the history of the Israelites through motion. Okay? So the beginning of all of the Israelites' history is creation with jazz hands, because <laughs> creation is fun and glittery, right? So creation. But creation doesn't stay fun and glittery for a while because what happens is creation falls into a fall. Right, So there's creation, there's fall. And then, after the fall, God's faithfulness is, is shown and evident in Abraham, in which he calls Abraham to become the father of many nations. That's this little hand right there, the stars. like Nations like the stars, right? So he says, I'm going to make you a, a father of many, many nations, and you're gonna, your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. Um, and then, after the stars, uh, the, the nation of Israel gets called into captivity. And they get uh, placed into Egypt in captivity, kind of in an incubation time, about 400 years of that, in which they're uh, in which they're bubbling and incubating and growing, right? And so there's captivity, and then after captivity, there is the Exodus. Okay, so God calls them out in the Exodus. This moves you through the first three, first two books of the Bible. So from the Exodus, these guys go wandering around. We do this with a whole hand because if you do it with a finger, it looks creepy. Um, so it's, yeah, they wander around in the in the the place around where they're eventually going to stop. They wander around in their faithlessness. And then brings the, God brings them into the promised land in which they stop in the promised land of, uh, of Canaan. 
um, which is where we would call the Middle East generally today. So they stop in the Promised Land. Well, eventually, God says, you know, these guys, they're in the Promised Land and they fall into sin. The toilet bowl starts happening. They keep falling down into sin and God brings in a judge. He brings in judges to save them. They're actually going to read this today in our scripture. He brings in judges to save them. They're the saviors and the prototypes for who Jesus is. They're the saviors. And uh, then after the saviors, uh, the uh, the Israelite people say, we want a king like everybody else. So this, this ushers in the period of the kings, or the moose king, if you're Jonas. So the kings. And the period of the kings is really, really not a great period. In fact, the kings end up leading the Israelites astray. And eventually they are exiled. God says, go away, get out. And then he calls them back to return. So these are... Our hand motions, he brings them back and he return. So that is the that's the history of the Israelite nation. Right? They have creation, they have fall, they have nations, they have captivity, they have the Exodus wandering, promised land, judges, kings, exile and return. That brings you all the way up to the book of Nehemiah. And this is essentially what we're going to read today. So you're in Nehemiah chapter 9. Um, it's a lengthy chapter, but you know what? We're going to read it anyways, and I'm going to interject a few things here and there. Chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descendants had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Quarter of the day. So they read from the scriptures what would be a quarter of the day, math majors. Six hours. But it could be three because they count daytime hours as the day hours. Doesn't matter. You guys want to stand and read scripture for three hours? We can give that an experimental shot. (laughs) You go anywhere outside of the United States, and that might be actually a little bit more what you see. Um, Most, like uh, we, we got transported to the Congo, right? And in some of these church services, they will last all day. Stefan talks about going to church all day long when he was a kid. I went to church all day long when I was a kid because I went. I was Southern Baptist, so we got up. We got there at seven a.m. We had Sunday school. We had, we broke for lunch, then we came back and we had night church. I snuck out. <laughs> I, snuck out. I just fell asleep. Uh, now I lost my spot. Okay, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunny, uh, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. Okay, so just so you know, everybody screws up the names, so don't get afraid of that. Just grip it and rip it, right? Uh, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. That's amazing. I think they were kind of like the worship leaders. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said... Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. So this is what, they're, what you're looking at. is You're looking at a worship service. They're reading the Lord's word. They're confessing their sin. They're praising God. And there's people standing up in front of them, praising God with a loud voice and telling everybody, stand up and praise the Lord your God. This is what you see as a worship service. And it says this, Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to everlasting, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Creation. See? 
You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. And you found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to the descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorite, Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites, and Mosquitoites. Wait, that one's not in there. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. Nations. See? You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. There's that captivity. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonder, wonders against Pharaoh, against all uh, his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them, so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. That's that Exodus part. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heavens, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and you gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock, and you told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen, failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast themselves for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on the path, nor the pillar of fire by night, to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. There is the wandering section. And notice a few things about this. Some of the most amazing things, right? How did the Israelites know which way to go? Verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. So they were, de- they were, they were delivered and they were uh, taught and they were instructed and then they were led by the, by the pillar of fire, by the pillar of cloud. They were given their spirit, of, given the spirit of God for instruction. He gave them their daily bread. He gave them food. He gave them water. He gave them everything. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and nations allotting for to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You're, you made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olives, groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were nourished. They, re- they reveled in your great Goodness. Now that's awesome, right? God brings them into the promised land, and all of a sudden they have not only kingdoms, they have towns, they have cities. This is a this is a slave culture that was enslaved in Egypt, and these slaves who are wandering through the desert like nomads, all of a sudden have cities and farmland and wells and all kinds of stuff. And it says, They reveled in your great goodness, verse twenty six. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. 
They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you from heaven. You heard them, and in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. There's those judges. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which you will live. Um, excuse me, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are gracious and merciful God. So here's that part where they are now having the kings and being exiled. And what's happening is, God shows them His goodness. And as soon as there's rest, as soon as there's nobody oppressing them, as soon as they're not suffering, they look at this and they go, you know what? Okay, thanks for all of that goodness, God. Now I'm going to turn my back on you. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to worship you. And God throws everything into disrepair. They cry out to Him. And the cycle continues over and over again until God finally says, I can't get through to you. I need to remove you. Verse 32, Now therefore, O God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all our people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And all that has happened to us, you have been just, you have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness. To them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our fathers, so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it, and we'll pick that up next week. Thank you for your patience in reading that fairly long session section. What I want you to see is there's this cycle that these the Israelites fall into over and over and over again, where God is faithful, and they are following excuse me, where God is faithful to them and He brings them into a land and they stop following and eventually everything falls apart and they turn around and they go, oh God, everything fall, fell apart. What was I thinking? I'm going to turn back to you. Please be faithful to me. He's faithful to them, pulls them back into this good place and then they lather, rinse and repeat over and over and over and over and over again. And then at the end of this, in this great kind of hanging crescendo, you've got this idea where they're going, oh, and things are really bad right now. So now we're once again promising to you, and we really promise this time that it's going to work. We're promising you that we're going to follow you, because hundreds of years have proven you know, the opposite. This time it's going to be different, right? This time it's going to be different. Those who are, uh, if, if some of my law enforcement friends were here, they would talk about this. A uh, domestic violence relationship is, uh, or a bad abusive relationship is usually you usually hear that phrase. Oh, it'll be different this time. Oh, he promised. It'll be different this time. I, I know because I love them and they're going to change. 
This is Israelites, humanity being the abuser in the relationship between them and God and God's faithful, loving kindness that comes back to them again and again. Today, um, what we want to focus on after we've just read all of this is how do you remember history? How do you remember history? I mean specifically, how do you remember your history? And I think there's several ways that we can remember history poorly, and I want to point you to the one uh, one way that I think we can remember history correctly. But before we jump into that, I need to I need to make a little bit of a side note here that I think one of the biggest lies we have in our culture right now is um, is actually these guys highlighted over and over again. They keep saying we have sinned greatly, we have sinned greatly, we have sinned greatly. We don't like that little that three letter word in our our society, the word sin. And one of the biggest lies that I think the enemy uses right now is to distract us from the fact that we sin against people and we sin against God and distracts us by by substituting a word that we would commonly use as mistake. Oops, I mistaked. I made a mistake. Sorry, forgive me. I made a mistake and I I stepped on your toes. I, I made a mistake. But if the Bible's true, we are not mistakers saved by grace. We are sinners saved by grace. And there's a distinct difference because a mistake, what's what's a mistake? A mistake is something you accidentally do. You you just yep, just missed you mistook something, you misheard something, you misdid something. But a sin is something completely different. It acknowledges your role in the situation. It acknowledges your role in the wrong. And one of the things I think we this is just a I'll, I'll save this for a whole other message, but I want to get that out there. One of the worst lies we have right now is that you are not a you're not a sinner, you're just a mistaker. So let's talk about human, let's talk about human history. How do we remember history? Um, here are some of the bad ways to remember history. We're going to roll through some of these. Traditionalism is one of the bad ways to remember human history. A traditionalist is somebody who's stuck in history. They are somebody who actually lives in an antiquated history. They're the ones who are saying, okay, well, I know the world's going this way, but I'm going to hold my ground because um, these traditions are incredibly important. Now, don't get me wrong. Traditions are incredibly important. They are something that are very important as long as we are learning from them. Okay, because... Society changes, culture changes, and if we're going to be not only relevant, but if we're going to live a life that's actually livable, and if we're going to apply missional principles from the scriptures, we have to realize that as the world changes, so should and ought we. Some of the things that we look at as traditions, like for instance, some of the old hymns. Um, Doug and I have some good, a few good conversations. I love old hymns, but where did some of those old hymns come from? Guys writing spiritual words to bar tunes. And now we live in them like they're the only thing that were, like if they were good enough for the Apostle Paul, they're good enough for me. Man, if the Apostle Paul is saying just, just, just as I am, then we're good, right? <laughs> that is, that is a bad way of thinking. These things have come handed to us by people who have had enough of a passion for mission that they have changed certain things in order to communicate the goodness and grace of Jesus to the culture that they are in. Traditionalism will never really move. It won't really act because what it wants to do is it wants to live in history. It doesn't want to live in present or live towards future. It wants to live in history. 
what we are called to do, what we are commanded to do, is we're actually commanded to hold on to our doctrine in a tight, tight hand. Our doctrine is our beliefs, the things that we believe in. We are to hold on to those things. But everything else, the way we apply that doctrine into society, we actually have to hold in a loose hand because the doctrine stays the same. The application of that doctrine must change. If it doesn't, we will not be able to communicate the gospel clearly and effectively to a lost and dying world. So we hold on to the truth, and we change how we adapt that truth into a culture, which means we have to be wise. We have to be like the Old Testament says, like the men of Issachar, who were wise and understanding of their days. But this isn't just it. It's not just traditionalism. There's more. There's romanticism, the romanticistic view, the romanticism view of history. This is not being stuck in history. This is actually being stuck in the present and longing for the past. Oh, the good old days. Oh, the good old days. I just can't wait for the good old days of three years ago. And romanticist, romantic, a romantic view of history is stuck longing for the past. And usually this is not stuck longing for the things we did in the past, but stuck longing for the way that God spoke to us in the past. Oh God, I remember that one time when you spoke to me in that one way. Do that again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing all of the same songs that I sang that one time when you spoke to me. And then I know that you're going to do that again. I'm going to be in the same place that you once... I'm going to go back to this conference again and again and again because I want you to say the same thing to me again. But here's the thing we forget. God is not the God of the same. He's the God who does new things and brings new mercies every morning. God does different sunshine, does sunrises and sunsets every single day. And oftentimes we can have a moment where we're really impacted in our lives and we can be like, God, just do that. I just want to go back to that. I want to go back to that. When God's going, no, come forward into something different. I want to speak to you in a different way. The the romanticist, the person with the romantic view of history is stuck longing. Well, oftentimes not move to where God is doing new things. But then there's more. There's the pessimistic view, which all you pessimists, you actually call yourselves realists disagree um, agree to disagree okay so the, the the pessimist the negative the overtly negative view of history the pessimist views history as always going wrong it's always gone wrong always will gone wrong every time I try I fail every time I try it goes wrong every time I try it's not perfect every time I walk there's not enough money every time I step in faith there's not enough stuff going on every time I've done anything God you've not done anything Pessimists will be, will be stuck being angry at God that life is not better and keenly forget that God has allowed you to live in such a way where you complain about God's lack of faithfulness in such a good world, right? Like the pessimists will see everything poorly around them, see everything dark and bad around them. Unfortunately, the pessimist just gets paralyzed because they won't move forward. They won't take a step because they can't see God's faithfulness in the past. But the opposite side of that is the overly optimistic, I'm pointing at myself, the overly optimistic person, right? The overly optimistic person who is often naive. They are often um, it's just simple and ignorant in their view of history. They will see that everything has always worked out. And oftentimes we'll go, you know what? It's never been failure. I've never, they will never learn off of the things that have happened in their life because they will downplay the negative always in order to upplay the positive always. And then 
this one's actually a healthy view of history. We're just going to call it a healthy view of history. I don't even know what I called it in your other thing. It's like the realistic version of history or something. But a healthy view of history is somebody who actually looks at their history, learns from the things that they did wrong, and applies that into the future. Okay, this is a fairly healthy, robust, rounded view of history. This is, I think, the history that is being laid out here in chapter 9 in the book of Nehemiah. They're looking at this going, God, we did this, but you were faithful. God, we did this, but you were faithful. But so here's a problem, though. The problem is, did the Israelites fall back into sin after this with what you know of the Bible? Yeah, they did. In fact, in a few more chapters... They're going to find themselves in the same exact book, falling into sin and disrepair and ignoring God's law and righteous decrees. Because that's their history. They may be learning from their history. They may be seeing things clearly. They may be going, okay, I think I see this. We sin and you're faithful. We sin and you're faithful. And that's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing. But it's not the same thing as this one that I want to show you today is a redemptive view of history. A redemptive view of history is totally different. A redemptive view of history is not only seeing God's faithfulness because of our sin, but seeing the fact that God purchases you and your sin and all of its consequences, and somehow through His power, through His grace, through His glory, He utilizes the brokenness in your life for your good and for the good of the church and the world around you. I want to say that again. God purchases your sin and your soul. He purchases your entire life. He even purchased the consequences of your sin. And then He utilizes that stuff, those struggles, that trial, and that even the consequences of that sin. He utilizes that for the good of you and for the glory of Him and for the good of His people and for the good of the people around you. This is a completely different way to see history. This is, I think, what the Israelites are lacking in this particular moment because they haven't seen the fullness of redemption yet. They haven't seen the Messiah that comes and that has come to die for your sin, not just to give you a clean slate, but to actually take the entirety of the clean and the bad slate and take it and use it for His good purposes. That's called redemption. Um, we use this in our common, common vernacular, vernacular, in our common vocabulary. We take a coupon and we will redeem a coupon, right? You'll take a, or a coupon, depending on what part of the country you come from. There's coupons and there's coupons. I'm from the Midwest, so it's coupon. You'll take a coupon, coupon, and the more I say it, it just gets weird. <laughs> um, you take one of these things that has value to it, and it doesn't have value until what do you do? Until you bring it to the place that gives it value, and you exchange it for that value. You exchange it for that value. It has value only when it's utilized. And this is how God purchases your sin. He redeems you. The word redemption, when we sing, my Redeemer lives, we sing anything about our Redeemer, that we're seeing our Redeemer. That is the idea. He is redeeming our sin. He's bringing it back to use it and purchases it, purchase it for good. That doesn't mean we go on sinning, but here's the deal. The deal. When, we understood redemp- when we understand redemption rightly, What we see is the past you have, the history you have, including the history after Jesus, the struggle that happens inside of you, that history is God's power and grace working in your life for His good and the good of those around you. 
For those of us who've struggled with addiction, we see this pretty clearly. Those of you who have struggled with addiction, God will use often your addictive personality, your addiction to draw yourself to Him, cause you to become an addict of Him, and then help other addicts understand that they're searching for a fulfillment of that addictive personality and all kinds of things that are going to destroy them. And now it's time to come and be addicted to Jesus Christ, right? Like that's the addict's message. That's redemption. Using the struggle in your life to help you see how He draws you into His goodness. But those are just the easy ones. See, God purchases your old resume, and maybe you've never struggled with addiction. Maybe you've struggled with, oh, I don't know, fear. Maybe you've struggled with pride. Maybe you've struggled with humility. Maybe you've struggled with um, lust. Maybe you've struggled with power-mongering. I know I struggled with all of those Thursday or Tuesday or whatever. That struggle that you have, that human struggle of taking over God's position, taking over God's authority, taking over God's power. If it's something like God calls you into something and you, you have all these fears and these anxieties going, you know what, God, I don't, I don't see it like you, I don't see it like you, I don't see it like you, and I'm fearful that it's going to happen this way. What we are doing is we're actually taking God's seat saying, I can predict the future better than you, God. I can predict the future better than you. And as he battles that back, what we get to do is we get to go help become living water and soothing water to those who struggle with anxiety. So for those of you who struggle daily, that is what God is up to. In your struggle, he's trying to show you how big his grace is and how you can communicate that grace to a world that needs to know that it's not about becoming perfect. It's actually about having your eyes open, your heart open, your mind open to being in the struggle and struggling through sin and coming to His grace and coming to His, his, uh, his faithfulness and coming to His redemptive work, coming to His, his heart for your, uh, His heart that, that wants to battle you with you in your sin. That is the idea, is coming to you, coming to Him in the struggle. He comes and meets you. He battles with your sin, battles with you alongside of you at that sin. And as you battle that way, it shows the relationship and trust and hope that you have in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. See, I think unfortunately, because we've done this whole mistaker thing and because we haven't understood what sin is, we've thought that God, uh, His whole goal in the cross is to come, as we come to the cross, we ask for forgiveness and then God just wipes our slate clean and then we're good after that. Like He wipes our slate clean, then we're good. That's not true. It's not true and you know it. He wipes your slate clean. He forgives your sin. But He also wipes your future slate clean as you fall in sin. And He takes that future sin. He takes that future struggle. And He shows you His future grace. And He shows you His future goodness. So as you step in faith and as you walk in faith in the goodness and glory of Jesus Christ, people around you get to notice the fact that it's not about you being perfect. And it's not about you telling them why the world's all falling apart. And it's not about all the rights and the wrongs. It is about a true and living relationship with Jesus Christ that if you did not have that, if you did not have that, you would fall into nothing more than oblivion. Uh, the great American theologian, probably one of the greatest, uh, definitely the greatest theologian we've had to date, but we've got a few that are starting to eclipse him. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, who wrote back when Benjamin Franklin got zapped with electricity, which we read is in 16-something or no, 17-something or another. But um, 
Jonathan Edwards, who lived about the same time Benjamin Franklin did, he once said that it is an incredible work of grace to watch man go from sinner to saved. But it is an even much more powerful grace to watch a saved man remain saved. So if you deal with pornography and God saves you from that, He will use all your struggles, all your fears, all your points where your faith falls short. He'll use that for your good. If you deal with faithlessness regarding money and God's provision, He rescues you from that. He will use the way that you now see the foolishness of the faithlessness in a way to save others and encourage them. If you, if God has saved you from anxiety and God has saved you from depression and God has saved you from hurt and God has saved you from all of this stuff, God will use that very pain in a way that only He can. And some of you have suffered great losses here lately. I tell you what, God will use that pain in a way that only He can. And only He can. So today, I think the best way to wrap this whole thing up is as we come to Jesus, as we come to a point where we get to worship Him in song, as we get to come to a point where we get to worship Him and praise Him, as we sing the words to in Christ alone, I think maybe we just need to be rocked by that. Are we really putting our confidence in Christ alone? Are we really putting our confidence to save us and to keep us maintaining this life of holiness in Christ alone? Or is this something where we're looking at ourselves and going, nope, I got this. When we look at our past and we look at our history, are we stuck in it? Are we longing for it? Do we look at it totally negatively or totally naively? Or do we rightly see that God is so powerfully in, in He's so powerfully acted in our history that He has not only saved us, but He's used all of that brokenness in our lives? Because only as we see it that way will we come to Jesus Christ, fully, completely, wholly relying on Him and walking confidently into the future, knowing that no matter what happens, no matter how much we screw this up, God's got it. God's got it. So let's pray. And let's sing. And I pray that God's Spirit will move and move in you to help you remember all of your history. Pour maybe the entirety before you like a video reel. And to help him help you see his faithfulness and his grace so that you can walk in faith of his redemption. Lord Jesus, I do pray. I pray that you would do that in our lives. I, I'm an incredibly visual person, Lord, so for me, like I go ahead and reveal all of that history to me in Almost a video montage. But for those of us who connect with you a different way, Lord, I pray that you would open hearts and open eyes to see the true depth of the sin that we have been saved from and we are being saved from. That you will help us to see that we are not just simply somebody who made a mistake and now you've wiped the slate clean and now we're good. But that there is something flawed and broken inside of us in our sin and we will mess this up. But you have purchased all of that and use it for your glory and for your honor. I pray that you will help us to see that. I don't know any other way to live besides to look at my life and to go, yeah, this is all messed up. And praise you that you use it through all of the mess. Praise you that you work through all of the mess and all the messiness. Lord, help us to know our history well, to see it well, so that we're not doomed to repeat it, but also to know your faithfulness and your goodness to redeem through all of that stuff so we can walk confidently in faith with what you're doing. 
We love you and we give you our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join 